Welcome to the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast, a podcast created to inform patients, families, and caregivers about important health transformation topics. Since the 2001 Crossing the Quality Chasm Report by the Institute of Medicine, our nation's healthcare system has recognized its need to improve quality of care by way of six important aims that make healthcare safe, efficient, effective, patient-centered, timely, and equitable. But we cannot hope to cross this chasm and achieve these aims until we make fundamental changes to the whole healthcare system. All levels of this work require dramatic improvements from the patient's experience. So this podcast is dedicated to you, the voices most underutilized resource in healthcare, our patients' voices. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Natasha Washington, president and founder of ATW Health Solutions and sponsor for the Patient Partner Innovation Community. Follow the PPIC community online at atwhealth.com. Okay. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to our podcast today, Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast, PPIC for short. I am your host, Desiree Collins-Bradley, and I am really excited about this episode today. We have a very special guest with us, my fam. My hello and welcome. Thank you, Desiree. I'm so excited to be here. Wonderful. And so we're actually going to have a really rich discussion all around diversity, equity, and inclusion. You guys know that we talk a lot about DEI and what does that really look like? And so, you know, from listening to our podcast, I have a daughter with a very medically complex condition. And, you know, most say clinically in her paperwork, she has a host of disabilities, but I like to call them unique abilities. And so, you know, I met uh, my at a, a health equity kind of initiative that we're working together with AMA and IHI. And we started, you know, really talking about our kids and the different similarities. And I learned all about this wonderful organization that she has and that she's working with to really promote boots on the ground. And what does that look like and supports for um, families and communities who have, I would say, children or adult children or loved ones that have unique or disabilities. And so we're going to really jump right into that conversation. But before we get started, I always like to highlight our sponsor. So our sponsor for this episode is ATW Health Solutions. ATW Health Solutions is a Chicago-based healthcare advisory and consulting firm that has gained national recognition for transforming healthcare delivery systems from ordinary to best in class. At ATW Health Solutions, we use a data-driven, evidence-based approach to make healthcare better by focusing on improving quality, safety, and health equity in organizations and government agencies. Simply put, we create and implement innovation solutions for the right people and the right problems. Okay. So my, you know, before we get started, we talked, had a great discussion in Chicago at the meeting. And I really want to take the time to, you know, kind of let you introduce yourself and kind of tell our listeners who you are and where are you. Sure, Desiree. So I'm actually physically in Washington, D.C. I'm a first generation immigrant from Vietnam who um, came to America when I was seven. I'm also um, a physician. 
I'm a general internist and um, I'm the mother of two young men now, which makes my heart kind of stop because <laughs> they're my babies. Um, and, uh, and I've spent the last 20 years doing a mix of um, healthcare policy research. And then I went into government when uh, in the Obama administration working on health reform. And then the last uh, three years before I started Institute for Exceptional Care, I worked for Anthem, which is the country's second largest insurer. Um, so I'm I'm all those things. I'm uh, I I think my career path has been one of, and my life path too, as kind of a bridger. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're a child immigrant, you you bridge cultures for your family and your parents. And the same with moving from primary care in uh, mostly underserved communities to research to government to private sector. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Oh, you're you're speaking our language as, you know, I think it's really important to kind of elevate the voices, you know, although we see each other, right? We see each other every day in the stores, on the street, but you don't really know, like, what are people's stories? And so I'm learning more just here, having your introduction, like, you know, this is, is wonderful. And I think you bring such a great perspective to this because you see it from many different angles right from the provider space to community member space from the parental space so you have a very um bird's eye view from every angle of this topic so you know thank you for that this is going to be a wonderful discussion so you know really you talked about your organization institute for exceptional care Explain to us, you know, tell us the exceptional, the Institute for Exceptional Care story. How did it get started? You know, what is yeah. the say, mission, vision, and where are you guys now? Kind of catch us up to speed of what is your organization? Thank you so much for asking. Um, so, you know, I, as I explained, I am a mother and my second child, um, who is now close to 20 years old, he was diagnosed with autism pretty late, around age eight or nine. And um, despite our resources and my being in healthcare and my being a clinician, we decided to take things one year at a time because he seemed like a happy, thriving kid. Mm -hmm. And so we were completely unprepared for his first crisis, which came when he was a sophomore in high school. Whoa. And it really, yeah, it really made us scramble. You know, it was, um, it was just that point in school when the demands change they really ratchet up and even though he's a super bright kid i mean he was teaching algebra to his middle school principal when he was wow. eight years old um whoa smart <laughs> smart but he had so many challenges especially with writing and mm -hmm. uh, and verbal communication um and it was just causing him so much distress he was starting to self-harm and we just freaked out um and I had to activate my network and we eventually found um, this wonderful woman that I refer to as our autism coach who mm -hmm. explained to us what we were seeing and experiencing and explained it to him. And she um, helped us understand, um, you know, not just what the strategies were, but just what, how we can keep expectations high and just try to change the world around him to help him move through it. Um, the problems didn't stop there. 
you know, like for many other families, COVID was um, really hard on our family and on, on Alexander, my son in particular. But what happened was after I managed to catch breath with that first crisis, I just had a woke moment. I was like, what happened here? How did we fail him? How did the system fail us? You know, why, why did his psychiatrist give him the right drug for the wrong reasons at the wrong dose? Um, and I just went on a path of exploration, asking the why, why, why questions of anyone I could find. And that's how I discovered my own theory about what was wrong with the healthcare system, that our general pediatrician never gave us the right advice or referred us to the right resources, that um, the psychiatrist was not trained in how to approach anxiety in a youngster um, on the autism spectrum. And part of that woke moment was not only, you know, I'm sure you can predict, I'm thinking, well, you know, she's she's wealthy, she's well-resourced, she's got a lot of people in her network, she's influential. People who don't have those things, what, what must life be like for them? Yeah. And the other half of my woke moment was, wow, I was really oblivious. And I think that means I wasn't unusual. I think that made me pretty typical yeah. of general healthcare leaders. And I thought this has to change. Mm -hmm. And that's how um, I started finding fellow travelers, other healthcare professionals who have affected family members who were ready to do something about it. And we are, many of us are mid-career or even later. And so we've just accumulated years and years and years of relationships in healthcare and also street cred. Yeah. Um, and, and it makes us the rare organization that has those characteristics and is trusted by the disability community. Oh, and that is huge. It is so huge. It is so huge. In fact, that I swear to God, Desiree, our first year, I only exhaled at the end of it because we did not have a face plant moment <laughs> with our advocate <laughs> partners. Like, yeah. like we, because we can't afford to. The mistrust between the disability community and healthcare yep. is so deep. They just assume that healthcare is a source of harm. Yes. Um, that if we're going to represent general healthcare, we cannot afford to lose their trust. And so, so IEC is a nonprofit. Um, that is committed to transforming healthcare for people with intellectual and or developmental disabilities, conditions like autism, Down syndrome, fetal alcohol syndrome, um, et cetera. And, um, and we do that through one, making sure that we drive culture change mm -hmm. and that everyone in healthcare, not just the IDD experts, but everyone, mm -hmm. um, has an appreciation for the special lives that people with IDD live and um, are both culturally prepared and also technically prepared to give them the clinical support they need. Um, and the second piece of that is making sure that all those clinicians know how to partner with all the other service agencies mm -hmm. that people with IDD need because in, in our current world, there's this massive gap between the clinical world where you go if you have a physical problem or maybe a mental health problem, and then the world where you get things like vocational support mm -hmm. or you know support with transportation or your activities of daily living. 
It's as if we think that you can slice human beings down the middle. Yeah. And that's just nuts. And so, so we are on a mission to create new ways of helping people um, connect across that divide. And then the third area of work is really making sure that government and insurance companies, anybody who is paying for healthcare, uses their influence to shape the kind mm. of care that occurs and hold clinicians accountable for, for it being high quality care. So that's kind of IEC in a nutshell. We, we do, we, we do um, a lot of different activities, but those that's the vision. Well, you know, that is amazing. And I think, you know, thinking about colleagues, right? So clinicians that don't necessarily come in that day-to-day engagement of a patient that has intellectual disability or behavioral health illness or whatever that may be, if they don't have the tools and strategies to really um, have a good, I would say effective and culturally sensitive visit, you're setting them up for failure. So, you know, it's great that you guys have a place for them to go to learn, right? We're all in active learning all the time. Um, But I think that peer-to-peer, right? Peer-to-peer mentorship learning opportunities, they can be vulnerable and connect with your organization in a way that they necessarily would not want to connect, say with their patient and family in the office, right? They want, I think people go into healthcare I truly do believe this because they want to make a difference and really deliver good health for you. There's bad apples in all bunches, but I really believe when people put that commitment, because it's a commitment, right? To deliver healthcare, whatever it is, whether you're a nurse, all the way up to um, a physician, a specialized physician, that's a huge commitment. So for them to have a safe space that Mm -hmm. they trust to come and be in active learning so that they can go back and almost like it, and my idea is almost like training the trainer, right? So when I know better and I go back to my home office and my partners in my practice, I can then teach that culture right there. So then there is a culture shift of that sensitivity and inclusion. Um, and then having a child that has, you know, a host of um, medical complexities and disabilities, you know, there is a huge level of mistrust. And, you know, there's a big difference between I want to go and see Dr. So-and-so because it was such a good positive visit versus I'm crying because I don't want to go there. Although it's good clinical care, it's not a good experience, right? Yeah. And, and those, um, those things that are that feels softer, you know, than whatever you do with the stethoscope, they actually can have as much impact on someone's health outcome and life outcome as the hard stuff. And I don't know if you know, Desiree, but the average amount of time that medical students get exposed to IDD is 11 minutes. Whoa, 11 minutes. That is... It's interesting that you say that because, you know, I'm in Houston. Our listeners know I'm, I'm in Houston metropolitan area and I do um, do a training program here in Houston with the medical residents um, 
here at the local children's hospital and the different programs. But it's interesting when they come through the program and they come to the home of a family that has a child with a disability and the ones that have family members, right, that have had whether that cerebral palsy or autism, they, they, they get it. And then there's a huge gap in those that have never been exposed. It's like deer in the headlights and they, they just, they're just so, um, they don't have the tools. I keep going back to the tools and strategies to really be good engagers, right? Yeah. They want it. They want to do their best, but yeah, you don't teach them that in medical school. And the reality is, you know, it's you and I know it's not realistic to ask medical schools to add like an extra course here and yeah. there, but the reality is a lot of what they need is so basic that yes. you can just sprinkle it throughout somebody's learning career. Right. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons that we think they should want to do this is that um, when you approach a care relationship or um, clinical decisions, keeping in mind people who require the most accommodations, mm -hmm. you usually end up doing it better for a lot of other people, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, for example, it turns out that when you change um, healthcare written materials, Mm -hmm. into uh, eighth grade reading level language. Mm -hmm. The people whose understanding you improve the most are not eighth grade level readers. They are 12th grade level readers whom you mistakenly assumed <laughs> wanted their health information at the 12th grade level, yes. right? And so it's kind of like curb cutouts. Um, once upon a time, we all lived in a world without curb cutouts. Mm -hmm. And some people manage that okay, but it wasn't easy for anyone. No. You create the curb cutouts for people in wheelchairs, and lo and behold, it's also <laughs> great for parents with strollers and people with suitcases. Like life is just easier for everybody. Yes. Um, and that's that's our ethos too, is we just think, look, all of healthcare will be better if clinicians are more flexible in the ways they communicate, if they slow down, if they listen to people's concerns and goals. I mean, it's super basic stuff. And yeah. frankly, if they just first see this person as a human being, which is, I think, what's great about what you're doing, it's just exposing people to real yeah. families. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I'm a firm believer when you know better, you do better. Um, so, you know, thinking about, you know, there's, it's been a, buzz everywhere, right? The buzz is diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI. Some people call it EDI, you know, but for us that have been living in this, and you've been in this longer than me, my daughter's 15. Um, how important do you feel like, I would say, what would be the impact mm -hmm. to have a more, I would say, inclusive environment? Um, or do you have examples? Have, have you seen this? within your own family experiences, the impact that having that more, I would say, inclusive and um, sensitive, culturally sensitive um, environment, have you seen impacts in that space? Oh, absolutely. I have seen emergency departments where, um, especially in pediatric hospitals, they know to set aside separate space for children with special needs that is quieter, you know, mm -hmm. less bright, um, 
away from all the chaos and activity, mm -hmm. they might have go-karts with things that help to calm people down, like squeeze toys or weighted blankets. And it just creates a, a whole new level of safety. It also prevents harm, mm -hmm. right? Because when you don't have those strategies, you end up with a patient who is likely more likely to be agitated, yeah. um, more likely to freak out and have yeah. anxiety attacks, not be able to communicate because when people with IDD get anxious, their communication ability goes down and then you end up over medicating them. Yeah. We, we heard a story about um, one emergency room doc who watched a movie about the first person ever diagnosed with autism and started crying. And the, the movie maker asked him, why are you crying? He said, because at his hospital, the written policy is to sedate everyone with IDD who comes in first, and then you ask questions. And Whoa. here he was, yes, here he was in middle age as a senior clinician being confronted with how wrong that was wow. and feeling like he was complicit in wrongness. Um, and so there are, good and bad examples and so many opportunities. Yeah. And and really it just takes igniting individual people like that. Yeah. Wow. 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 You know, and, and again, going back to that theme of you know better, you do better. Like I'm sure now that he has been exposed, right? Exposed to this community, he will then now take that and my hope is that he will then challenge that policy and then bring others along with him in that journey. Um, that rocked me to my core as, you know, we've spent time inpatient, outpatient, everything in between. We are frequent flyers of the hospital and I could not imagine being brought the option of sedation first versus, hey, do you need the iPad or in involving child life yeah. into the process early. Um, some hospitals are doing it great. Others, you know, there's opportunity for improvement. So for those, cause you know, we have listeners from everything from patients, families and caregivers all the way up to hospital CEOs listen to the podcast. So for those that are listening and they're like, you know what? I need this at my hospital. I need this in my clinic, in my community. What is the process? Do they just email you? How can they find you to just start the conversation? They can absolutely contact us. Our website is um, www.ie-care.org. And we can introduce them to some of the projects that we're doing. Um, like our on the ground project on Long Island, where we're trying to improve not just what happens in the emergency department, but try to prevent avoidable ED visits, um, which is in everybody's interest. Yeah. Um, but we can also tell them about some of our new ideas. Like we are thinking about building what we call an IDD advocate core um, for people like us who are healthcare professionals, but also have a personal commitment and who have day jobs, you know, and it's hard to, um, it's hard to know how to help when yeah. you are so busy. But we think that if we can um, resource people like that with a community, mm -hmm. with talking points, maybe with a set of structured action steps 
that yes. their kind of organization can and should take, whether that's in the HR department, at a hospital, or in the way that a health plan you know, creates its care management programs, that we can get them to become change agents from within their own organizations. And that that is, that is so key to movement building because you and I know yeah. people can advocate from outside healthcare, but nothing big happens in healthcare without right. the people in it <laughs> wanting right. it to happen. We have to have buy-in. Yes. <laughs> yes, you have to have buy-in. And I think, you know, again, that, that coalition building piece is so important as others you know, I, I know, and you know this as well, sometimes when we try, it feels like, oh, this is an insurmountable task. I'm in this abyss by myself. But there you have allies in this space, right? You have allies. And so that whole theme of coalition building to really improve healthcare. And again, when you improve the system all the way from local to national, Look at the impact. The the example you gave about the curve cutters, it wasn't just for persons, it, it didn't just benefit persons who were in wheelchairs or had disabilities. It impacted everyone, right? Yeah. So it's not just, you know, when I talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, yes, we want to make sure that, you know, we be as equitable as we can, but that equity ecosystem benefits everybody. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. if you're going to get better health care for everyone, right? So yeah, this, this is, this is great. Another way that I, I say it sometimes is I'm pretty sure that we've built the current system thinking about the 80% or maybe even that like fictional person who lives right in the middle of the bell curve. Mm -hmm. And we know none of us are there for more than a hot New York minute yeah, <laughs> during yeah. our lives, right? We are not average, any of us. Um, yeah. And and so when you build a system for the average or for the typical, mm -hmm. it makes it hard for everyone because yeah. nobody stays there for very long. Instead, yeah. if you think about it, you know, let's build for the outliers, then it's easier for everybody. It just makes sense and we're we're learning that it's not just theory we're actually learning that on the ground because um you know in our emergency department project one of the things that the stakeholders really wanted to build is something we call a digital snapshot so you can have it on a phone or device and in just 90 seconds what can you share with that urgent care um, nurse or the ED team or the security guard or the ambulance driver or the group home staff person that says 90 seconds, these are the most important things to know about me, right? Here's here trigger words for me. Here's how you calm me down. Here's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, God, I really want that for my 84 year old mother. Yes. Right. Or I want that for me. Yes. <laughs> Because when you're in a health, and I'll say even any, many people have health crises all the time. And I'll say, I recently had a health crisis. When I left you at the meeting, I ended up in the ICU. Oh no. I flew home and went straight to the hospital. I was sick. Um, long story, had medication change and sent me into really bad um, um, reactions. So anyway, but when I arrived, I was not cognitively all there right the lady asked me my birthday and i was just like wait 
when's my birthday? I what so something like that. Now I don't have intellectual disability, but in that moment I needed something. While my husband was parking the car and I'm checking in, I needed support. Yeah. So something yeah. like that, right? Anyone it can benefit anyone, especially when you're in those crisis moments. That's right. No, if the staff are prompted to ask, do you yeah. have X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that that's, that's really good. You'll have to connect me with that, <laughs> with that <laughs> online, you know, because it's such a huge benefit, even if, and I'm thinking about the parents that are in my network here in Houston who have children, you know, that are on the spectrum or you know, or nonverbal in the school system, you know, mm -hmm. how great would that be to have that, you know, digital footprint to have yeah. with them? Or, or if they run into a police officer. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, we haven't talked yet about the intersection of IDD with race and ethnicity and mm -hmm. poverty and homelessness, but I yep. mean, it is, nothing good happens there. Yeah. Um, it, it all just gets worse and criminal justice. And um, and so just having the power to own how you present your own story. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a mini medical record. It's about the most important things um, that you need someone to know about you. I, I got it. We have to believe that that will make people safer. And safety, you know, and I would hope as we've seen things go in this country every which way but loose but as it relates to safety you hear all the time here locally in houston and texas i see it on national news how you know persons that have intellectual disability or a behavioral health illness or and i'm gonna say this bluntly killed shot Yes. Because no one was informed of how to engage them. Yes. It's just automatically not having the tools. I go back to those tools and strategies to assess the situation effectively and then implement those tools so you can avoid fatal, fatal, fatal outcomes. And so that is a, to me, and, and, it, to me, that's a public health crisis that someone needs to look at our policies. I know, which is a whole other hour long conversation, but you know, there is to me a crisis in our communities, especially as it relates to those persons that cannot speak up for themselves in a way that others can receive the information, whatever that is, whether you're mm -hmm. deaf, or nonverbal, or, you know, my daughter's deaf, she uses sign language. She has a cochlear implant. Her, her speech is muffled, you can understand, but if she was in a situation where people aren't familiar with her, they're not gonna know what she's saying if they don't know sign language. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it takes a lot less effort than you think. Yeah, <laughs> and, yes. and I, I think we fully believe that um, a lot of how the, the health system responds now is um, in part that they haven't gotten the training, but then that lack of training makes them not confident. And right. experts who don't feel confident kind of act out. Yes, defensive. You know? 
they, they get defensive and they get frustrated and they get angry, all of which is understandable. And so they are not functioning at their best and, and many of them know it. And mm -hmm. so we really like to couch training in terms of um, what we call ambient learning. Mm -hmm. It's not an extra hour of sit in front of the computer training. It's more like, how can we, here's some strategies for making your day go better. Yeah. Here's some strategies for making that next patient encounter easier you yeah i love that and i love that language i tell language matters right the approach just hearing you say that you know here's something that you can do to make your day easier i'll buy 50 of those right? <laughs> if it's gonna make my day easier whatever that is who doesn't want a strategy or tool or resource to make their day easier well this has been, I would say, a wonderful, I could spend two hours talking to you about this. And, you know, I hope that our listeners got some great value. And if you guys are listening and you want to connect and learn more information, you know, you can email the Institute for Exceptional Care and get more information. Please reach out to me, Patient Partner Innovation Community my email you guys have all my contact information and i will do my best to connect you guys to make sure that you know the resources are uplifted and again share the information if you have colleagues that you think could benefit from this please share it share it share it sharing is caring you learn good things cast those seeds and gardens will grow is what i always say <laughs> so, so any last party words well, first of all, thank you so much. This was incredibly fun and rewarding. And I will give a shout out that we would love to have um, partners in Chicago and the greater Midwest because, you know, we started in the, in the Northeast and we're feeling self-conscious about that. Um, these are really, we want to make sure that the solutions we're coming with will work for lots of different communities. So um, just giving you a shout out, please reach out to us and connect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, that's, you know, that's how we all become change agents. I know that, you know, I will definitely take a breath and take a step back and see how we can absolutely, you know, build those partnerships to, it's all about collaboration, right? We have to be collaborating partners with each other in order you know i know our goal for everyone is to make healthcare better for those that are tuning into the podcast that's why they're tuning in because they want to improve healthcare, every aspect of that ecosystem so my hope is that you know people hear it and they want more and they will connect with us and we'll connect with each other but you know this has been wonderful so thanks again guys for tuning in to this week's episode of patient partner innovation community podcast and as always stay safe and be engaged follow the ppic community online at atwhealth.com